Uh, you can be seated, my friends, and it's good to see you all. Thank you, band, for serving us well, always serves us so well. And I invite you to open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We left off in verse 19 last time. We looked at Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, and now we finish Proverbs 6. This is the 10th instruction given to the Son, marked off by those words, my Son. And we pick up in verse 20, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Uh, the title of this message is The High Cost of Sexual Sin the high cost of sexual sin. And that may sound familiar to you because we talked about uh, the issue of sexual immorality and covenant marriage in chapter 5, but that's because he addresses this, this same topic three times. And so this is the second of three treatments of the sin of adultery, of sexual immorality, and I want you to see today why he is so concerned about this particular sin And so let's start just by reading Proverbs 6, verse 20 through 35. It says, My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be content through, though you give many gifts. This is God's living and active word. The high cost of sexual sin. We all understand when something costs more when than we anticipated. It happens most often, I think, in young people's lives in their first car. Um, this is an area where I can't tell you a story about how dumb I was, though I've been able to do that almost in every proverb sermon because I am good at negotiating for vehicles. My first cars cost me $800 each, and they looked like they cost $800 each. 
about a friend of mine who will remain nameless. When I met him, had a 2015 Civic, the lowest of Honda's offerings. And he had gotten into this Civic, uh, allured by the advertising at the dealership, the ads on the radio and TV that said, you can drive a brand new Civic. And everybody knows, wow, a Civic, the most elementary of Honda's offerings. It's going to last forever, right? It's a beautiful car, small space, cram in his young family in there. And and he thought, you know what, this is a good deal because they advertise in 2015 things like $119 a month or $99 a month, no money due at signing. I mean, they had all these, these opportunities and allurements and he got sucked in. And he ended up paying far more than was advertised. He had to put several thousand dollars down. And, and the way a car lease works, and I've had many uh, friends who know a lot more about money than I do who swear by the power and um, opportunity of car leases. I find them to be evil, evil like the adulterous woman in, in Proverbs, which is why I'm using it as an illustration. So I will never lease a car, Lord willing, uh, and if you, if you believe in the lease of cars, just probably don't talk to me about it because I misunderstand some things. Because let me just do some math with my friend. So when I met my friend, he had driven this car and gone over the mileage. Because when you lease a car, you don't own it, but you pay like you do. And it seems like it's an easier payment. And you have to keep it under a certain predetermined number of miles per year. And for the several years of his lease... He went over the mileage repeatedly and egregiously. And when he got back to the dealership to return the lease, uh, it was time for him to pay. And they demanded an exorbitant sum from him. And he didn't have that money. And they said, friend, it's okay. What we're going to do is we're going to sell you this car that you've been paying for for three years. We're going to sell it to you and you'll be the owner of now a three-year-old Honda Civic. Not quite worth what it was worth in the, the day it was driven off the lot. Then it was probably a $17,000, $18,000 car. Uh, now it had depreciated in its value, lots of miles on it. But it was still, still worth something and you still need a way to drive. And so he came into another uh, opportunity to own this same Honda and to have the excess charges kind of built into his payment scheme. And, and now he was paying more than twice what he was paying before, but now he was the owner of a 2018, 2015, I can't remember what year this was, uh, Honda Civic. Uh, when I met him, he was chained to the Honda Civic, metaphorically. He had, uh, he, there was no way out of the Honda Civic. My estimates, which sometimes exaggerate, believe that he ended up paying approximately $40,000 for a 2015 Honda Civic worth maybe seventeen dollars or $18,000. And it all worked out in the end because, well, he doesn't have the Civic anymore. It happens to us all the time. We buy something that costs us far more than we anticipated. We enter into a relationship or an opportunity thinking it's one thing, but instead it's something 
entirely different. And though a, a ripoff lease is a minuscule problem compared to other things, it's that same concept of an unexpectedly high cost that the wise teacher tries to bring his son to a point of understanding as it relates not just to adultery but to sexual sin. This passage specifically speaks of adultery. It's, in fact, the first time the word adultery, specifically adultery, is used in uh, the book of Proverbs. But we've already talked about the violation of the marriage in Proverbs chapter 5. We'll talk about it again in a chapter following. But I think the reason he keeps returning to this particular sin is because of how well it illustrates every kind of sin. You see, sexual temptation is a kind of temptation that transcends other sins. And I don't mean only that it is more involved, but I mean it has a higher and obvious cost and it has a sort of allurement to it where those who enter into sexual sin are willing to make that trade. They're willing to pay the high cost. They're willing, because of a strong desire or lust or pressure or uh, just a, a wandering eye, whatever it is, it, it's enough inner compulsion to engage in this transaction that they have no interest in what it will cost them, whether it destroys their marriage or fuels their lusts to a place of, of no ability to control themselves, they understand that this was a deal they were willing to enter into, and it illustrates something that's true of all sin. And so I realize that a, a, a section that's specifically about adultery is maybe seems to be less applicable to college students who are unmarried. But I would remind you that the nature of adultery is sexual sin. And sexual sin is illustrative of all sins except it has a higher price and penalty. And I'm not just saying that. That's what Jesus teaches. Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who gazes at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The root seed and cause of adultery is the lust that is alive and well in the heart of every person in this room. And what you desire is not the main issue, but the main issue is that it is a forbidden desire, that this desire to uh, take what is not yours, to have uh, what is not appropriate to engage in sexual immorality uh, outside of God's intention for sex, which is covenant marriage and a monogamous, beautiful relationship, is to experience exactly what the Proverbs are warning us about. It's to trade everything good for everything bad. It's to enter into a lease that you can't repay. It's to pile on debt that will strangle you and drag you down. It's going to reorient your life and ruin your life ultimately 
And that's why Proverbs 6, verse 20 through 35 speaks of the high cost of sexual sin. It's a warning to all of us about every kind of sexual sin that could entice us and, by association, every kind of sin. Sexual sin is more severe. It's more illustrative. Again, that's not just my opinion. That's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Free, flee, means run away. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's because sex is not merely physical. Sex has spiritual and emotional and physical components to it, and so sexual immorality has an ability to affect a person on every single level of their being. It's why Hebrews 13.4 says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is not a sin that receives uh, a different judgment from God. It's just one that amplifies what all sin does, which sin seeks to deceive you to make a trade with you, to convince you that its enticements are worth it and to cost you far more than you'd ever be willing to pay. And so listen to the words of Proverbs 6. Consider the high cost of sexual sin. And this is appropriate and enlightening no matter where you are in relationship to marriage. Maybe you're just dating. Maybe you're extremely single. Uh, But whoever you are, to know the high cost of sexual sin, to think about this illustration of adultery, to know these things before you're married, before you cheat on your spouse, or before you open your, your web browser to surf for porn, before you click on a link, before you pressure your girlfriend, before your wandering eye does more than wander, before you find someone else's spouse more attractive than your own, before the immature lust of a college student who's hooked on porn fuels and forces his life in all kinds of directions, before all that happens, just listen to the wisdom of these parental warnings in Proverbs 6, 20 through 35, and consider the cost. It's really just a cost-benefit analysis. It's as if someone sat you down before you signed up for that civic and said, bruh, you're going to pay $40,000 for a civic, and it doesn't even have leather seats. Don't do it. Let me show you a better route that will save you money and give you wheels. It's the same kind of argument. And it's actually just as practical and down to earth. It's not a section that mentions the name of Yahweh even one time. And it's not because this sin isn't against Yahweh. It is. It's that this sin 
has very practical ramifications like every sin does. And to try to convince you beforehand that future engagement in sexual sin is not worth the cost, he speaks to us with great wisdom. Doesn't even talk about God directly, but with immense practicality, he shows us what adultery and sexual sin and every sin could cost you. And adultery illustrates the folly the Proverbs have been warning us about. This passage tries to sit you down and say, look, I'm way older than you. I've been down this road. Let me help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. It's a passage that reasons and talks to you very bluntly. It's not yelling at you. It's not speaking down to you. Condescending is what that means. And it's not trying to give you some kind of heavy burden because of past mistakes. Instead, it's just simply trying to convince you that sin, all sin, but this sin especially, has far too high of a cost for you to consider it. And it does it by showing us that cost. First, in contrasting the value of God's Word. Number one, the value of God's Word. So whenever you're thinking about the cost of sexual sin, I'm very interested that this has a kind of a wild grammatical journey. Did you hear it when I read verse 20 of chapter 6? It's the 10th time we've heard the phrase, my son. Again, trying to grab the parental voice of wisdom. This time it's not just the father's commandments that need to be observed, but the teaching of the mother is involved. I think this is most appropriate because it's showing you that mom and dad are together on this thing. There's a a marriage illustrated at the beginning of this teaching that reminds you that a healthy monogamous relationship that's founded and grounded in God's word could, by instructing in God's word, provide wisdom for future generations, for children to come Listen to your mom and dad when your mom and dad are wise unto salvation. Listen to their example. Never perfect because your parents aren't God. But if you have parents that have biblical wisdom, this is an illustration of them speaking to you. And the the wise teacher uses both father and mother because he wants that image of a faithful marriage at the outset And what's at the center of a faithful marriage is commandments and teachings. The words we've heard over and over again. Command and instruct. Command and instruct. And so you're sitting at the table with a wise father and a wise mother. And they're telling you to follow the commandments. Do what your dad says. And to not take everything your mom said to you a thousand times, stupid is as stupid does, or whatever your mom's little phrase was, and not to throw it away, but to listen to it carefully, to heed it, to not forsake it, but to, well, what are you supposed to do with it? 
Well, you recognize the value of it. Recognize the value of God's wisdom. Here, it's given to you by way of parental instruction. And not all of you have godly parents. But if you do, you understand that the basis for their instruction was the Word of God. And the Word of God is of higher value than sin and folly. And so repeatedly, the Proverbs has kept telling us to listen to what the Proverbs call Torah, the instruction, the Word of God, the Bible. And so to listen to the Bible is to put it into ourselves, to put it into our thinking, to put it into the guide rails of our lives. And that's what he describes in a metaphorical way in verse 21. It says, bind them continually on your heart. Remember your heart in the Hebrew Bible is that that center driving force of your entire life. And so if the center driving force of your entire life, your affections, your thinking, your desires, your will, your, your outcome, your, your worldview is centered around the wise teachings of the Bible, the teaching and commandment that your mom and dad tried to instill at you at a young age. If, if you could tie that to your heart and if you could tie it around your neck, like this thing, it would lead and guide you. I don't always wear a tie when I'm preaching crossroads, but when I do, it can be an illustration. And this thing would be the first thing I'd get rid of if I was going to fight you. And I would never fight Riley because he's deceptively strong. I mean that, deceptively strong. There's the witnesses in this room of that reality. But if I was going to fight Riley, I would lose the tie right away because it is in my way if I'm going to throw hands. Somebody could get a hold of this and I could be dealt with because if you get my tie, you can lead me around, right? What an excuse to not wear my tie. So, I'm free. If the commandments are around your neck and the teachings are around your neck, they are in a place of guidance. In the ancient world, an animal was led by the neck. And that's the image. He says, verse 22, when you walk about, they'll guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you because they're internalized in your heart, in your innermost being, and they're tied around your neck. In other words, they instruct you and direct you so much so that when you walk, you're guided by them. Wherever you go, you go where they tell you to go. When you sleep, they'll watch over you like a bodyguard or a sentry watching over you when you're your most vulnerable self, when you're sleeping. The commandments serve as a way to guard and guide your life. When you awake, they'll talk to you. The Bible serves as a companion to your whole life, someone to help you and sit you down and instruct you and encourage you and show you the way. And it it does so in a way that's clear and compelling. Verse 23, for the commandment, a synonym for the word of God is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Listen to me. The ancient world was a dark world. There was no light pollution. 
You could see the stars every night. You wouldn't have to drive to Montana to do so. And in a dark world, you needed a torch. You needed a lamp. You needed an oil lantern. You needed some kind of handheld torch to make sure you don't fall off the path or get lost in the wood. And the Word of God is metaphorically like that. It's illuminating. It's showing you where to go. I mean, the biggest question you have at this stage of your life is like, to quote your own poets, is, you know, why am I here? Why did you make me? What is my life for? And the answer to that is found in the Scriptures, that you were created for God, to live for Him, to honor Him, that His precepts, His commandments, His instruction would direct your life. And so you have the answer to the most pressing question uh, that's about your identity and about your direction and about your purpose. Why are you here? Well, you're here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to follow after Him and to give Him glory and praise and honor for the breath and life that He's given you as a gift from Him. You're a creature. He's your creator. You need what He has. And and because you're a sinner, He has grace for you. And you wouldn't know this apart from the Scriptures, illuminating the very essence of what it means to be you. God has helpful instruction for you. For when you walk, you'll be led. When you lie down, you'll be watched over. When you awake, you'll be spoken to, ministered to. And the Word of God is a lamp and its teaching is a light. And then look at what the end of verse 23 says. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Nobody likes to be corrected unless you teach yourself to like to be corrected. And you're not going to like the Bible if you don't like to be corrected. Because the Bible continually readjusts our thinking. It confronts us in the deepest preferences and desires that we have that are bent in the wrong direction. If you don't like to be corrected, if you know everything, you're not going to like the Bible. But if you learn how much you need correction how much you need redirection, how much you need instruction and commands, how much you need God to speak into your life as your creator, as your sustainer, as your savior. If you know how much you need the word of God, it will be valued by you and the reproofs of discipline, which is just a way of saying correction, readjustment, confrontation, uh, recalibration, It's what the Word of God will do to you. It corrects wrong thinking. This is the concept behind Romans 12, 1, that we're no longer conformed to our sinful patterns of thinking, but our thinking is transformed by God as He works in us. That's what the Bible can do to you. And when you love the Word of God and when you value the Word of God, because we're talking about cost and value here, He gives us this description of the Word of God that makes you say, I want this because I want to be led and guided. I need this in my heart and on my neck. 
I need a shepherd to lead me. I need a guard to watch over me. I need lamp and light for my path so that the outcome and direction of my life is the one that God has for me. I don't want to live in rebellion to God anymore. I want to follow the word and ways of God. Look at verse 24 and how dangly it is. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman. I mean, we had a really general thing going there about the Word of God, like how how valuable it is, how rich it is, how helpful it is. And then all of a sudden, it kind of felt like we the airbag came out in the car, right? There's in grammar, it's called a gerund, but I just think that's a funny word, um, gerund. And so the next verse, verse 24, is dependent for its existence on the page on the prior verses. In other words, this thing came out of nowhere, but naturally and essentially the immediate application of valuing the Word of God, verses 20 through 23 in the high cost of sexual sin, is, verse 24 and 25, in this specific instance, to resist sexual temptation. That's point two. Resist sexual temptation, verses 24 and 25. We value God's Word. This is how we start to understand and estimate the high cost of sexual sin. We value God's Word, verse 20 through 23, and then immediately, as if the most obvious implication of valuing the Word of God is, we submit our sexual life to God by resisting sexual temptation, verse 24 through 25. Look what it says, to keep you. Same word about keeping that the Proverbs have used all throughout. Keeping, watching, protecting to keep you from the bad lady, the evil woman. And I I don't want you to, in in this ever-woke age, to be confused about this. Somebody's wearing out Elizabeth Elliot on the internet, by the way. Similar to this. Um, This isn't trying to just blame women for men's sexual sin. That's not what's happening here. And if you're reading it that way, it's because you're reading it through such a modern lens. Instead, the Proverbs talk about bad guys all the time and bad girls all the time. This is an illustration of a bad woman. And if you don't think there's such a thing as a bad woman, you have a theological, anthropological problem with the Bible's teaching about sin and fallenness. There are bad girls and there are bad guys. And by default, my friends, we are them. Uh, Your badness, your sinfulness, your depravity is on display as soon as you enter the world stage. Your conscience has been violated. You have done things that you are not proud of. You are a sinner by nature and by the things you've done with your mouth and mind and eyes and hands. You're a sinner. And if you give in to that sin, and if that sin defines you, the Proverbs call you a bad one. Sometimes it's a bad guy. Sometimes it's a bad girl. This is a wicked woman. The Word of God is trying to keep the Son from the evil woman. We already met her in chapter 5, and we actually met her smoothness, the smooth tongue of the adulteress, verse 24. 
is a reminder of the beguiling nature of sexual temptation. This, literally in Hebrew, woman of badness, is trying to attract this young man, to lure him in. And she is to blame, and so is he, if he gives in to this temptation. In fact, attraction in the Proverbs is a thing that is bad. Proverbs 11, verse 22. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, that's a pig, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. The allurement of beauty, which in the Proverbs is usually identified as that which is superficial and external, is something that is, just to sum up, bad. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty, allurement, attractiveness is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You see, there is two kinds of beauty in the Bible. The beauty that the Proverbs is describing is apparent beauty. It's superficial beauty. It's the kind you can get at Sephora. I have a lot of daughters. I know everything about Sephora. Everything. So the Sephora kind of beauty is external, obvious, and maybe not beautiful at all. The other kind of beauty the Lord describes in the Scriptures is a true beauty, an inner beauty, a quiet beauty, a spiritual beauty. And this woman has the bad kind of beauty. And she's trying to allure this young man in with the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And he says in verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. It's like uh, eyelashes. It's like a it's just a way of her roping you in. The eyes are a lamp to the soul in the Bible. And she is a huntress. And the victim is this young man. And the reason he gives into it isn't because she's so good at what she's doing. It's because he hasn't valued God's word to the point to resist sexual temptation. And the woman of badness, he confused her for a beautiful woman when she was really just alluring and not genuinely beautiful. James 1.14 I think, sums this up. Everyone is tempted by their own evil desires. I mean, you don't sin because somebody made you. You're tempted by your own evil desires and you're dragged away or led away and trapped by them, not by her. So it looks like she's setting a trap for you because she is. And that's on her. That sin is hers. But when you walk into that trap, knowing that you have fallen for the wrong kind of beauty, this desire leads to sin, James 1.14, and then sin grows and leads to death. Resisting temptation by valuing the Word of God and by using that biblical lens to identify what real beauty is will help you in your struggle against lust. Some of you are hooked on pornography. And it's because you have a deficient definition and understanding of what is beautiful. You have 
confused your mind and your desires by trading something lovely and something wonderful and something created and blessed by God, sex in the context of marriage, for something cheap and filthy and exploitive and evil and wicked and cruel. You have taken something that God made and contorted it into the image of the devil and his fallen angels and a whole race of people who are running as far as they can away from God's way. Any kind of sexual immorality, whether it's same sex or pornography or adultery, all of it is a contortion of God's original design for human sexuality, which is truly beautiful in God's sense of beauty. And to turn away from it is to exchange it for what is actually ugly. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, someday you'll see it. I'm summarizing what he said. Someday you'll see it. Someday sin will be seen as it really is when its robes are ripped off when its mask is pulled off. You saw it one way, but someday when everything is made right, you'll see it how it really is. And it will make you so nauseous and sick to know how deceived you were, to know how broken your definition of beauty was. And to the world, this is a joke. They say there's nothing more natural than sexual desire. And so it's your responsibility just like it's your responsibility to have lunch. I mean, you just take care of yourself sexually is what they say. Oscar Wilde, one of the most famous depraved people in history, author, said, I can resist anything except temptation. And that's our world's perspective, isn't it? I can resist anything except temptation. You see, the link between the value of God's word, verses 20 to 23, and resisting sexual temptation, verses 24 to 25, is you're being given the instruction. There's something around your neck that's supposed to pull your head away from what's wrong and foolish and ugly and help you see what's true and beautiful and eternal and godly and good for you. I think it was D.L. Moody or John Bunyan. It's, it's one of those attributions that's unfindable. But a lot of people have it written in the cover of their Bible. It says, this book can keep you from sin. Or sin can keep you from this book. This book can keep you from sin. Sin can keep you from this book. That's the relationship between God's Word and growing right and righteous desires and being fooled by the lusts of your heart that will lead to, well, they're going to lead to a cost. You're going to pay. So what is the high cost of sin? Well, if you value, you resolve to value God's Word and then you resist sexual temptation because of your relationship with God's Word, he concludes with these kind of interesting and difficult aphorisms, proverbs, that are all tuned in to try to help you recognize the high cost of sin on a very practical level. Can we look at them quickly? 
verse 26 through 35. Look what this says. This is all recognizing the high cost of sin. So what will sin cost you? And I've tried to turn these into a little phrase you can jot down if you're struggling with your sin. Recognize the high cost of sin. Look at verse 26. It says, and the the structure of this passage, if those of you who care about this, there's the word for in verse 26 or because, and then it's parallel in verse 34, for because. And then it kind of fills in these two becauses with these thoughts. Uh, They're difficult for me to discern exactly how they work, but I've tried to sum them up just walking through them, okay? So 26 is a difficult phrase in Hebrew. The NAS says, for on account of a harlot or a whore, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. So what the translators there have done is tried to tell you like prostitutes are going to take all your money, but adultery will take your life. It's true, but I don't think that's what it says in Hebrew. It says for the price of a prostitute is merely a loaf of bread or only a loaf of bread but a married woman will hunt down and take your life in its preciousness. So it's a contrast still, but it's telling you something about the nature of marital infidelity because adultery is the illustrative topic. He's saying a prostitute will cost you money, but adultery will cost you your life. He's not minimizing the sin of prostitution He's not minimizing your engagement with a prostitute, but he's reminding you that everything comes with a cost. And the point of verse 26 is the first point to jot down about the high cost of sin. And it's this, it will cost you far more than you think. So whatever you think would be the cost of continuing to log on to the pornography website, whatever you think would be the cost of continuing to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, whatever you think would be the cost of of embracing the pride of a homosexual uh, relationship, whatever you think the cost of seducing someone else's wife would be, you need to know this one thing, that a prostitute may cost a loaf of bread, but adultery will hunt down your life. The point of all of it is that... It's going to cost you more than you think. It's going to cost you more than you think. And so whatever you think this is going to lead to, or whatever you think this is going to lead to as far as your your guilty conscience, or pain in your marriage in the future because you don't know what a real woman is, or some kind of emotional and financial difficulty, which you'll get into in a minute, in that a broken marriage would lead to, alimony payments, child support, uh, whatever. You just need to know at the outset, it's more expensive than you think. It will cost you on every level of your life. And if you don't repent of it, it will cost you on judgment day. And so it's more expensive than you think. Second, this is point three, A, B, whatever you want to do this. Verse 27 and 28 gives us another cost. It says, can a man take fire in his bosom or in his lap and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, they do. They can walk on the coals and 
India. I hate when you misunderstand the Proverbs. Stop doing that. Normally, you step on hot coals. Normally, the skin comes off the bottom of your feet. Normally. Right? You with me? I get that you can hot foot it because you, whatever. That's not the point. In fact, the scooping of coals into the lap isn't really the metaphor here either. It's tricky, but it's either talking about putting some coals and some fire on yourself, but the word lap there is the word for the lower edge, the hem of the garment. And in the ancient world and in my barbecue world, which today is a high and holy day for barbecuers everywhere, we deal with coals a lot. I've probably told you the story where I stepped on a coal and it burned a hole in my foot and I got blood poisoning. And it was a neat story. Carlin Wendler saved my life with horse pills from Africa. And dealing with coals has, has, has taught me so much. I went to church one day and the neighbors saved my house from burning down because I put some coals that I thought were extinguished into my green trash can because they're natural. And my dream, green trash can uh, melted like a candle. It smoldered and melted. And when I got home from church, there was just liquid trash can <laughs> and smelly burning grass. It was a disaster. My neighbor saved the day. Thank you, neighbor. Coals are dangerous and they need to be dealt with. And you usually use something called a shovel to deal with them. You want water and shovel involved. The picture here is someone using the the hem of their garment. You know, they got these long flowing uh, robes in in the ancient Near East, and you scoop up the coals with cloth. I mean, that would cause instantaneous combustion. Really, it's the same idea. Whether you throw them on the lap or you're scooping them with the coals, you're dealing with this stuff wrongly. What you're doing is so incredibly stupid and so illogical that you're going to get roasted here. And so I think the way you summarize verse 27 and 28 is you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. I know that's an expression that the Proverbs don't use exactly, but I think that's what this is saying. Like the cost you're not considering is how badly you're going to be burned. You are going to be burned so badly by a result of neglecting God's word and embracing this sinful choice. Third, verse 29, it says, And so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. You see, there is a propriety and a decency and an intimacy inside of covenant marriage. A couple is is married before God, and, and when you commit adultery, you have violated a spiritual and intentionally inviolable relationship, the most intimate relationship on earth. And so that's your third your third cost. You violate the most intimate relationship on earth. You throw hearts away and lives away and children away. And you throw away everything that was intended to be built together before God in this marriage union. You take your wedding day and you spoil it and you poison it and you ruin it. Sexual sin is a direct violation of the covenant of marriage, a picture of Christ's love for the church. And so what we're talking about here isn't, well, you know, my my second marriage. Well, my third marriage... What we're talking about here is a violation of creation ordinance, 
the very cornerstone of how God built human society being uprooted and destroyed, its intimacy and beauty scorned and exposed and destroyed and humiliated. You violate the most intimate relationship on earth when you commit commit sexual immorality, when you violate marriage vows. Verse 30 and 31 give us a fourth cost. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all goods of his house. You get it. There's scenarios where a thief could be pitied, right? If you don't believe me, watch Aladdin. But you'd have to end your Disney boycott. There's a scenario where someone steals because they're starving, and that doesn't excuse the crime, but it puts it into context. There's room for normal human empathy if someone who is stealing or who is starving and their children are starving, they steal an apple. Got to eat to live, got to steal to eat. You know, you know the song. I'm cutting it off right there. Otherwise, we all get along. Um, but you do. You understand that. And that needs to be repaid. That can get your hand chopped off in Aladdin. That can put you at odds with the law. You have consequences when you steal, even in an empathetic way, in a way where, you know, someone will say, well, nobody's going to blame you. I mean, you didn't have any bread, so you stole a piece of bread. But guess who's going to blame you? The bakery guy that you stole from. And so even an excusable offense won't be excused. When he is found, verse 31, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The correlation here is that there is and should be no sympathy for the sin of adultery. No sympathy, no empathy. And in our culture, empathy is a golden calf. Empathy is like the object of our society's worship. And people can feel about everything and empathize and sympathize with everything. And it can be total wickedness. But it's empathy and it's this this chief virtue in our society. But when someone cheats on their husband or when someone cheats on their wife, there ought to be no sympathy for the adulterer. It's not like Aladdin stealing an apple. This is a violation of the most intimate relationship on earth. Verse 32 and 33 give us another cost. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Verse 33, wounds and disgrace he will find and his reproach will not be blotted out. I think this is where it starts to get really ultimate. What would sexual immorality, what would the sin of adultery cost you? Well, according to verses 32 and 33, it costs you your mind. That's lacking sense. That's making sense. That's how you think. So it would cost you your mind. You could lose your mind. Verse 32b talks about self-destruction. So you could lose your life. 
Verse 33a talks about the wounds and disgrace and reproach. It's going to cost you your peace, your honor, and your reputation. So what is the cost? Well, it's your mind, your life, your peace, your honor, your reputation. All of this is at stake. And you think it's just natural, automatic, just a bad habit. That's not what sexual sin is. It will cost you your mind, your life, your peace, your honor, and your reputation. And finally, verse 34 and 35, for jealousy enrages a man and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be content though you give many gifts. So you slept with somebody's wife and it's gonna cost you what you can't afford. 26 says more than you think. 34, 35 alludes to a cost that you can't afford because though your honor and your reputation will be ruined What could happen is you could get socked out at minimum or you could get killed. I just Googled it up and there was a million stories. He killed the man he thought he was, this is the headline, the Bradenton Herald. He killed the man he thought was sleeping with his wife. Now he's going to prison. This woman was so tired of being cheated on that she told her husband, I've been sleeping with this guy and he went and shot him in the face. And he was just a neighbor with kids. He didn't do anything wrong. That's the kind of violence that can be elicited from this kind of violation. You could be beat down. You could be killed. I mean, there's stories of people killing entire families because of the sin of adultery. This world is a dark place and adultery is a dark, dark crime. So what do we do with all this? How do we respond? Well, we've been given a cost analysis sheet. Somebody smart went with you into the dealership and helped you not get a bad deal. They tried to show you that there's a way for you to live according to God's word, which would teach you how to avoid sexual temptation and show you how costly this sin is. And for some of you, you've committed the sin. Some of you have have committed adultery. Some of you have violated marriage vows. Many of you have committed general sexually immoral sins. All of you have lusted in in your hearts and are by Jesus' definition, adulterers. And sin is never free. It's always costly. Succumbing to temptation will require of you. Which is why I want to close by reminding you of the Synod of Dort. Nothing's more practical than the Synod of Dort. You might have heard of the five points of Calvinism, TULIP. That's a modern invention. It's based on something called the Synod of Dort, the canons of Dort, the rules of Dort. In the 17th century, a group of Dutch theologians assembled with all kinds of troubles and politics in order to deal with some teaching that had crept into the church that said man isn't as sinful as as we're saying he is and He can resist God's grace if he wants to and and he can lose his salvation because that's the nature of grace. 
And this was bad doctrine. And so these theologians got together and had a, had a canon of Dort, some rules and some measures. They came up with five of them. They were similar to what you know as tulip, but in one section that talks about sin, it speaks of the price of sin. And I want you to hear this because the remedy is built in. Here's the words written 400 years ago. Our sin, by our sin, we greatly offend God. Deserve the sentence of death. Grieve the Holy Spirit. Suspend the exercise of faith. Severely wound the conscience. And sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. They aren't writing that to make you feel bad. They're writing that to help you get back on the path. You don't want to offend God. You want to honor God. You deserve the sentence of death. You want that penalty removed. And the only way it can be removed is the very cross of Jesus where forgiveness is found and sought. As a believer, you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is reflective of the purity of God, the sinlessness of God, the the perfect holiness of God. And you don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. You don't want to suspend the exercise of faith. In other words, you don't want to live according to your way. You want to live according to trusting God in His way. And He has a path forward for you no matter how bad you've sinned and messed up. And you don't want to lose the awareness of grace even for a season because grace is everything to the believer. What God is offering you is not just a better way to live and some good advice at the dealership. He's offering you not even a fresh start. He's offering you a whole new life that has a true definition of beauty. It has eternal joy and pleasure. It has a covenant marriage in front of you for most of you that will bring honor to the Lord and joy to your heart for generations to come will raise up their voices and say, I love that mom and dad stayed together. They weren't perfect, but they loved each other and they honored God. That's what's being offered to you. Or you could trade it for what you can't afford. Father, help us to precious, to value precious Jesus and to extol and exalt in His grace. Thank You for the wisdom of the Proverbs that guards us from demise and doom. And thank You for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that allures us to true beauty and true satisfaction and joy beyond compare. Help us to make that trade to forsake sexual sin and to embrace your plan for every aspect of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.